is so nice. Good morning. How are you doing? This room is thick. It is thick with people, different than the last gathering, but I am so glad to be with you. Um, before uh, we got started this morning, they went around and we just said what we were thankful for. And this morning I said, I'm so thankful I'm in California because currently in Portland, Oregon, there is a blizzard. And our church was canceled today. Yeah, so pretty good for me, right? I'm so, I just say that to say I'm so thankful to be with you this morning personally and selfishly. And then also I'm just so grateful to be with you because I love this community. I'm missing Gare today, but I'm gonna hold it up. You know what I mean? Best I can. If it goes badly, don't tell him that. Uh, just tell him it went great and we'll go from there. Um, I know you are currently in a series in Exodus. Yeah, you started last week. Some of you are like, I wasn't paying attention. Okay, well, you are in a series on Exodus. And uh, today we're not going to do that. Uh, Gare often gives me a great little license and says, you know, you can preach on whatever you want to. And I had a particular message that God had given me earlier this year that I just felt like might be for your community. So I'm going to do that. Is that okay? Oh, great. I'm so glad you're up for it, or at least you're stuck and you were going to have to do it anyway. So either way, um, I would love to pray for us, just for me mostly. I get so excited when I'm up here, but I want to chill out a little bit. So is that okay? Can we pray together? All right, Father, we just welcome you now. And Holy Spirit, we just bring ourselves into your presence. You're here, you're with us, but we again turn our attention to you. And I just want to say, Lord Jesus, we just want what you have for us today. So I pray that you would, in the ways that only you can, illuminate and articulate and define and disrupt all that you need to as we spend this next 30 minutes or so sitting with you in your word. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, teach us and lead us. I pray you would hide me in all the ways that I need to be hidden. And I pray you'd make much of Jesus now. And we ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I was 14 years old the first time that I witnessed the heart and fidelity that can live in a marriage covenant. And I wouldn't have been able to articulate it then. I wouldn't put those words to it then. But I'll never forget the impact of seeing a love like that. It had been just over a month since my mom had told my dad that she was leaving him after 25 years of marriage, a godly marriage, a marriage that for many, many years centered around ministry and the church and faithfulness to the kingdom. And we sat on the floor of our living room, my sister, my brother, my dad and I, and with this uninterrupted faith, my dad led us to pray for my mom. This wasn't the first night we had done that, but I'm pretty sure uh, that running to Jesus was all my dad knew to do when our world fell apart. And really it was all we could do in that moment. But I remember in particular this distinct memory, and that memory has stuck to me for all these years in a way that I cannot shake. It's funny how life is made up of a million seemingly insignificant moments, and yet they can often have the greatest impact. This one particular night, my little adolescent soul somehow caught a glimpse of something that I now know has changed me. That changed not only how I saw my dad in the moment and in our life story, but also how I would forever understand love and its power. That night as my dad prayed, I did see a love on display that could allow one not only to persevere in the worst of circumstances, 
but also somehow see and hold to a reality that was yet to exist. That night on the floor of our living room, I saw a ruthless fidelity and hope in my dad as he prayed these simple prayers born out of this union he had with my mom, riddled with all kinds of history and trust and layers of intimacy and somehow amidst the reality of our devastation and his confusion and heartache and humiliation, he was in the truest sense and in a way that a 14 year old can understand it, a groom still bound to the well-being of his bride, unwavering somehow in his faithfulness to her as he sat in the realities of her faithlessness. I didn't know all the ways that that image from that night would shape my life or my understanding of who I am, but I do know that witnessing a love like that will force even a teenage soul to recognize that this kind of love and the hunger it produces in the soul is both ancient and universal. In his book, From Here to Eternity, Frank Viola says that we were all born into a romance, one that he says exists at the heart of the universe. This cosmic idea of romance when it comes to the human soul, of this persisting love, it's not a new one. Every human story begins with this truth, and we see it alive and well from ancient Greek and Eastern Asian mythology all the way to psychology today. We see the story of created beings transcends religion or worldview and at some level bears witness to a life meant to be lived in union. From philosophers like Plato and psychiatrists like Carl Jung, each have spoken to the very real ache within the human soul to both give love and to know love. And while this cosmic reality is sometimes compelling, for most, it's pointed us to the deeper questions found at the heart of any good romance. Who am I in the story? And what does happily ever after look like? Now, it's fair to say that on almost every page of the scriptures, we see an unbroken thread of theology of this cosmic ache. And by the way, that's good news for us. It's quite helpful for those of us on this journey. In fact, we as followers of Jesus hold to, I believe, the most stunning picture for this transcendent romance, that of a bride and a groom. And all of it starts on page one of the Bible. Now this morning, I'm gonna take a few minutes and I'm gonna pull on that thread. And you don't know what that means. I'm going to be in the Bible a lot this morning. Are you okay? I gotta be honest, it doesn't look like many of you are taking breaths. So I just wanna make sure, are we good? Okay, I'm gonna nerd out a little bit in the Bible for a lot of reasons. I really like it, I think it's gonna be helpful for us and then we're gonna to get to the good stuff, okay? Okay, but also don't quote me on that. that. This is the good stuff too. So don't tweet anything out or whatever. Are we tweeting anymore? No, we're Xing or whatever, right? Okay. Anyway, I'm gonna pull on this thread this morning. We're gonna do that together and I hope we will do so in a way which is, what, by the way, the powers of the scriptures, I hope we do so in a way that helps you reframe and re-see yourself in this story. Even though maybe it's something you've heard before, my prayer has been that you will find a new invitation for yourself as we read through these scriptures together. So let's do that, yeah? All right, we're gonna move through this biblical metaphor of the bride and the groom, and we're gonna do so in five movements. Can you say five? Good, you're awake and alive, I love to hear it. First movement will be creation. The second movement, the prophets. The third, Jesus. The fourth, the church. And fifth, a wedding. Only five, pretty good, right? Yeah, 
It's still going to be a long teaching. Buckle up. Now, after this, again, we'll get to what this means, but I want to begin with the first movement, creation. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, many of you know this, we find God creating. And it's here that in so many ways, he's holding up a picture of life as it was meant to be. This narrative we find in this text is a witness not only to who God is, but who we are in light of him and what it means to live life with him. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we find these words. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is pretty good, but if we jump ahead from here, just a few verses to the next chapter, we actually read again, but in a bit more detail, about this significant creation moment. In chapter 2, verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, these first two chapters of the human story are the same story, but told from two different angles. They are a snapshot that for most of us seems pretty simple, but in both, we see God setting apart man and woman by creating them with his image, with his breath, with his life. And we also see that his craftsmanship is unique and it's expressed in its uniqueness through union of this both and reality. What we see in Genesis one and two is a symmetry of God's full image on the earth through union. And it's from these verses that we both see God's profound explosion of his tangible, felt, experienced image on the earth, which by the way, for all you Bible nerdy people, we love that crap. I mean, it's like, yeah. And for the rest of us, a picture. We get a picture right here in Genesis chapter one and two of the invisible purpose and destiny of each created human being. Now, if you're like, man, there can't be more because that was so stunning. Buckle up, there's a bit more. And I know you're like, wow, really? Yes, really. Hidden in chapter two, specifically in verses 19 and 20, we also find what to me has always felt like a little bit of an insignificant detail in the midst of this crescendo within our creation narrative. It's here that we find Adam is given and seemingly to me again, insignificant task of naming the animals in the garden. Do you remember that? I mean, if you've really thought about that, it's a really weird assignment. Anyway, so he has this bizarrely small vocational moment, and we're brought into it. And it's here that we find God letting Adam feel his own deep longing, letting him feel the nuance of his created being and to experience within that longing a desire for a partner, a desire for an actual counterpart, what we would call a bride. Now, this ache, this cosmic ache that we find ourselves zooming in on right here in chapter 2 is representing something deep within Adam's design. You see, God lets Adam feel his own divine longing, his image-bearing calling out, and also he lets Adam search for that in every other created being without finding it. Until at the end of that search in verse 18, chapter 2, we read, it's not good for man to be alone and I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that phrase suitable helper is better translated opposite him or strength equal to him. So here in the middle of God's picture of life as it was meant to be in the midst of Eden, we see this finale of God bringing two people together for the purpose of imaging one. We see similarity and we see difference. We see a bride and we see a groom. 
This image is meant to point us not only to the relational union with others that we're called to on this earth, and I don't just mean marriage, but also to a greater picture of the perfect eternal union we were all designed for. A wedding, to put it simply, starts the human story, and it sets into motion for all created beings the familiar longing or the ache for a love that brings fulfillment, and not just to the heart, but to the soul. Now, from there, as the human story unfolds, we see that that desire begins to do the same. In the Old Testament, do you know the Old Testament? I hope so, because that's where Exodus is, so you're going to be there a hot minute, just for a little time. So in the Old Testament, we're introduced beyond just Moses. We're introduced to other infamous voices who, post-sin entering into the world, that's a whole other story for Gary to tell you about a lot later, but sin enters our story, and God uses these people called the prophets to call humanity back to the vision that he originally set out in Genesis chapter 1. And those people are called the prophets. And this is our second movement. Now, the people that filled the earth from the union of Adam and Eve had now wandered far from Eden and its vision for life, and the prophets were sent like town criers. Do you have town criers in LA? Nope, you're still awake. You guys are like, that was terrible. Thank you, but here we are together. So these town criers are sent to tell God's story to the people, to represent God's heart to people on earth. The prophets were sent to express God's deepest desires for his people, for us. And God, he expresses his desires through the prophets most regularly by using this marriage metaphor that we find in Genesis chapter 1. God, the groom, and his people, the bride. Now this provocative imagery, and it really would have been provocative in the day, while strong and sometimes violent, which you'll find out more about in Exodus, expresses the depth of the union God desires, but also points to the measures that God actually would go to sacrifice and show his love to his people. And here's just a few examples of those. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we find clear imagery of God's people as a formerly loving bride who has now become a prostitute, chasing after other men who would use and abuse her. In Hosea, probably the most infamous of prophetic imagery, we find a prophet who was directed to remain faithful to his wife, who was repeatedly unfaithful to him. And he goes after her time and time again, displaying his unwavering love and commitment to their union, but also to who she might become. And this was meant to be a picture of what God is like in the face of great infidelity, in the face of our unfaithfulness in loving him. And finally in Isaiah, after showing the unfaithfulness of the people in dozens and dozens of chapters, Isaiah ends with a beautiful reaffirmation of God's faithful, enduring, groom kind of like love for his people. And he does so in Isaiah 62. Now verse five reads this, as a young man, mar as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. These cries, the stories of the prophets, the imagery cast from their own lives reflected often complex realities of this great romance that we all find ourselves in that's alive in each one of us. But more than that, for the people of God, through the prophets, in very real terms, it defined the characters in the story. Again, God was saying, I am the groom and you are the bride. In no uncertain terms, he laid out for them and for us our part in this cosmic romance. And in that, he spoke to the very ache that every person in this room and on earth carries, a desire to know a love that actually satisfies us. And just like a faithful groom would, he wouldn't stop when they didn't play their part. 
In fact, God, moving beyond infidelity and burning with a holy passion, doesn't stop in his pursuit. After 400 years, we see the heart of the groom on display as he shows up like Mr. Darcy in the rain, and he declares, I love you most ardently. Anyone? That's it, church. Thank you. Jesus shows up through flesh and blood. And this is our third movement, Jesus. Jesus enters the human story and love puts on flesh and he in the language of the New Testament becomes the new Adam, which to most of us means very little when we first hear it. But if you think about it, what they're referencing here is the new Adam is something we just visited in Genesis chapter one. It means that Jesus, like Adam, would carry an ache in his body to be unioned with another, to his bride, incomplete without her, unable to rest until there was from him and from his love formed another, until he was with his counterpart. Jesus becomes human that he might obtain the joy and the passion that burned in his chest for us. In the New Testament, we find statements of this reality. John the Baptist, the cousin and friend of Jesus, he refers to him as a groom in John chapter three. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John says, and it is now complete. Jesus also calls himself the bridegroom when he was criticized by the Pharisees for not enforcing the level of fasting they practiced among his own disciples, saying in Matthew chapter nine, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Jesus boldly stating that his presence among them was like a groom coming for his bride a groom who was happy to be with them, but also aware and pointing to the reality that his purpose as a groom would be to ensure that they would never be separated from one another. And that, that would require a love so fierce that it would mean conquering the very thing that was conquering her, even at the cost of his own life. Sacrificial love, death on a cross, Love, born out of this desire for the other at all costs, meant giving a new image to what it would mean to be his bride. And that leads us to our fourth movement, the church. After Jesus' death, his conquering of sin, we begin to see a new family emerge. Just like that of a bridegroom, uh, from his union, we see God as he joins with his bride, bringing about new life. The recipient of an unconditional love like this will inevitably be transformed by that love in extraordinary ways. And we see this reality erupting in what we call the church. All throughout the New Testament, we find the language given in Genesis begin to fill the pages of this new story, of this new community that God's creating. The metaphor of bride and groom wasn't just a nod back to the old days or language used by the authors and the leaders of the church just to give a wink to the old language that they used. Yes, it's meant to beckon us back to the original story, but it does so because it seems there is no other language to be used when describing the power and the depth and the love of a union so profound. The mystery of this love, Paul says, can only be summed up in the mystery we find in that union that happens between husband and wife. In the book of Ephesians chapter five, we hear him echo these words. After talking about love and the union of a husband and a wife, a bride and a groom, he sums it all up this way. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. 
the church, the bride, pursued and pure because of the love of her groom. Now, just as it is in marriage, lives awake to the desire that comes from both our design but also our destiny to again one day be reunited, satisfied without interruption to our groom. That is the ache that everyone in LA is walking around with. That burning, that longing to be known, to know that there is something more, that I was made for more. This is that cosmic ache. The truth about who we are in the story of God is undeniable. But so many of us are still holding the question about the happily ever after. The truth is we are living in a story. We are living, regardless of how it feels, in a romance. And the scriptures tell us that we are living in a union, partially known and yet fully alive within us. And yet while that's true, our groom thankfully did not live us without a guarantee of the ending, because I don't like stories like that, yeah? No thanks, dot com. Now that leads us to our final movement, a wedding. <laughs> I don't think I should say that again. Just as the opening pages of the scriptures tell us, we are people meant for union. So if it feels like it, it's because it's true. And just as there was a wedding at the beginning, so there will be one at the end. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, we read, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And again in chapter 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. The story ends, the great cosmic story for the people of God, it ends with a wedding, an actual celebration of the bride finally being with her groom. And it's from this truth, it's from these truths that we've gathered now from the scriptures, we have a really clear understanding of who we are and what we were made for, but it's from that that we have to set our trajectory for love, for life as we know it and life as we live it in the kingdom. What we see so clearly in the scriptures is a narrative I think so loud and honestly so compelling that you would have to willfully reject it to not see it. The romance we find in the scriptures is one that cannot be denied and it is one that just as with any love story has the power to change the fabric of our lives and to change our future. And that is part of the good news we get to receive today. I'll never forget the feeling of uh, that wedding dress on my seven-year-old body. It was the 90s and we were living large. There used to be these dress, I'm not joking, used to be these dress up places where you could like rent out a room for a birthday party and dress up in people's clothes. Anyway, it might've been a Florida thing, so I don't need an email about it. Uh, anyway, we did this, we rented out this dress up room <laughs> and spent hours pretending together with my best girls about the life that I would inevitably live one day. Dress up was a thing. And when I saw that a wedding dress was one of our options, you better believe I was the first one in line. You have to live prophetically, you know. <laughs> As I finished putting on the veil and the dress, 
My seven-year-old body swallowed up by the grown-up size. I remember thinking, is this what a bride feels like? And my mind ran wild imagining the tall, dark, and handsome groom who probably would look like a mix of Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid and this cute guy from my Sunday school class named Aaron Ivy. And I wondered what it would be like to walk down the aisle and marry him. The dress that swallowed me that day, it did not make me a bride. But it did give me a vision for what it one day might be like. This story we find in the scriptures is what scholars call an inaugurated eschatology. It simply means an already, this thing is already happening and not yet reality at play. And while there is, as we've read this morning, an established and certain identity given to all of us who call ourselves God's people, we are a bride, an identity that centers a part of our reality in this romance. There is also a very real, not yet reality to it. So what do we do? What do we do with the in-between? What do we do with this ache that we feel? What do we do or what would a bride do if she waited to fully know the joy of being a bride? And what about our identity is meant to inform how we live, especially now in light of what's to come? As a teenager, and I should preface this by saying I grew up strongly Baptist. Anyway, we did a study one summer on the book of Revelation. And that probably tells you everything you need to know about my spiritual life. Anyway, I'm honestly not sure what I got from that Bible study, but one thing pierced me that summer, and it was a phrase from Revelation chapter two, and in that verse, John writes, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The love you had at first. Puppy love, I think, is what we as Americans have coined it. The love that comes to you so clearly at the beginning of a relationship. The way the movement of the other is known by you and how you anticipate the words that will fall from their lips. The beginning of the story where a new identity emerges as it wraps itself in another in the form of a relationship and where new intimacy brings life and power to the ache of love itself. The love you had at first. This language points to something that's meant to not only drive us towards relational intimacy, but also to remind us of who we are in light of the one we love and how it felt when we first were captured by him. How it felt when we first heard his voice or that pounding in our chest as we thought about his perfect love for us. And I think this is where we start. With considering the truth of our identity and also the gift of the intimacy it brings. Identity and intimacy, this is what we find at the center of the great biblical metaphors we explored this morning. And the truth is how we understand them and how we live into them, it changes everything. Identity, our identity as a bride. And some of you, that feels uncomfortable, and I get that, but this is just the truth. Bride, it's such a unique term that we don't often explore, so let me do that for us. Bride, this term is actually distinguished from wife. 
It is, it is a, an identity that centers not on the formal contract, but in fact on being the center of someone's affection and love. Bride is an identity that is intrinsically connected and tethered to a counterpart, to the groom. There is not one without the other. Bride is an anticipatory term, and every definition of it, it connects something that is about to happen or has just happened, not something that has been. A bride is the object of someone's love, and it's that love that animates her truest identity, how she shows up not only to her groom, but to the world. And at her core, a bride's greatest and most defining act is waiting. And this waiting has the power, this is the truth, and many of us know this, to either define her or to diminish her. Now there's intimacy too, and the intimacy that comes with being a bride is equally as distinct as the identity. If the identity of a bride is being loved, then the intimacy that comes with being a bride is love aimed at someone. It is marked and activated by the union, by the pursuit, the promise, and the patience of a groom. It is the regular exchange of knowing and being known, of becoming one. And at its core is hope. The anticipation of coming good based on the character or nature of another. When my mom left, we had no idea how long it would take to see her return. And just like in any relationship, I saw my dad fluctuate between the ache of waiting, filled with longing and desire and hope, to seasons of depression and grief and boredom. You see, fidelity, especially over a long period of time, is boring. And in that space of waiting, of the mundane, so many of even the best romances become indifferent towards the gift that it is. There is significance to our fidelity. There is power in our fidelity. That day in, day out dance of union. Because it's in that mundanity and that fidelity where we actually learn to either direct our desire towards the relationship in ways that will shape us for good or not. You see in waiting, in these spaces that demand we hold to our identity, which is so annoying, right? It's hard to do. But with that waiting comes this tension of what we do with the intimacy that's given as the byproduct of who we are. Waiting will either build your appetite or it will dull your senses. Waiting will either deepen your love or it will inflate your fragility. It will either reveal the nature of your deepest, truest hope, or it will inflate your greatest fears. Waiting, this mundanity, is at the core of a bride's identity, but how we wait and what we do with it, where we set our gaze and what we put our hope in will determine the kind of intimacy and goodness and fire and passion that we have as we wait. A few minutes ago, I asked a few questions, things like what do we do with the in-between of the now and the not yet? How do we live in light of what is yet to come? And these questions hold within each of them, not just an abstract or observable idea or curiosity, but in actuality, a confronting one, if we're actually willing to ask them. And we should. 
Because each of us this morning, while maybe holding a desire to know and experience this kind of love that we hear preached about week in and week out, also knows the reality of the mundane work of fidelity or love in this marriage that we find ourselves in. There are mornings we wake up and I'm not that interested in prayer. And I'm a professional Christian. You know, like that's a problem. All of us, we know this wrestle of wanting a wild romance with God, this passion, this burning, this fire, only to discover like in all the real relationships in our lives, we often better know how to manage or mitigate or minimize them as opposed to fostering what that relationship is meant to point to. And I'd love to remove myself from the equation because after 20 years of ministry, and don't do this math, and 30 years of loving Jesus, I was an infant. I recognize that my desire, though it's honest and real, and though your desire is honest and real, it will never actually be enough to sustain the love I want to have. Desire demands some form of discipline if it's ever going to be a realized joy. And if we, if we want to live as we were meant to live, if we want to live in the the gift and the power of our identity as the bride, then we have to figure out what kind of container or bow uh, that could direct an arrow in the right direction? What kind of container could hold a wildness of the love we wish to possess and yet also be strong enough to hold the ache of the mundanity of that love? What container could do all of this? Because here's the deal, the container is essential. You don't get married and just hope for the best. Maybe we'll talk, maybe we won't. I mean, some of you are like, it's work, I don't know. Don't, you need to see Gare when he gets back. I just wanna say it real simply, and this is gonna sound real simple, but the container I'm talking about, the container we need is prayer. And I think most of you are familiar with that. We've done it a few times this morning. Now, prayer, in the context that I'm talking about it, it has to reach beyond good morning and good night, or please help me, or a quick hello. The kind of prayer I'm talking about is the kind we actually can't afford to miss if we actually want to live into the identity that God has given us. It's the kind that involves those late night conversations or those delirious laughing sessions. It's the kind of prayer that is slow and marks the especially tender moments like we find upon waking next to someone when language is unnecessary but so much is being said. It's the kind of prayer that includes details and desires and dreams we carry day in and day out. And it's this kind of prayer, this kind of talking with God that we can't afford to miss if we wanna know the gift of the intimacy and the gift of our identity and who it is that God has made us to be. Prayer, Mother Teresa once said, enlarges the heart until it is capable of containing God's gift of himself. Prayer, that is the language and the vehicle of the greatest expression of love and it is mundane. It is boring sometimes, yeah? It's okay, you're at church. I'm a pastor, so you can say that. (laughs) But it is, by the way, the bridge that connects us most deeply to the heart of who we are and who we love. It is the thing that when we aim our hearts towards it, we begin to understand who we are in a way that will fulfill and empower and illuminate and reveal the fullness of, of the love we were actually meant to know, the love we ache to know. Prayer is how we set our eyes to live with the face of our groom in view. 
It is the way we remember who we are and how we are to live. It's where I can get really strong and confident because I know this love that protects me and pursues me and is for me, it frees me to live wildly and trusting in a God that I often cannot see. Prayer is the way we remember who we are and how we were meant to live. And it keeps our lamp burning. In Matthew 25, just before his betrayal, Jesus begins to tell parables pointing the hearts of his listeners, and in particular to his disciples, uh, to a new reality of waiting that was coming to them. Jesus is so kind to do that, gives them a heads up. And he starts this particular story by talking about 10 virgins, a group of women in the story meant to ready themselves for the arrival of their groom. And he tells them to keep their lamps burning, to be ready at any moment for the arrival of the groom. And five of the virgins, Jesus tells us, were ready. And the other five, he says, were not. Now, in Jewish tradition, after the proposal by a groom, the bride would not actually know the day, hour, or time of the actual wedding ceremony. Yikes. (laughs) The groom and some of his close friends would at some point leave his home to go to the bride's home where there would be various ceremonies, followed by a procession through the streets after nightfall, leading them back to his home. And while that concept is extremely unnerving to most women in this room, in it we find that the imminent marriage of a bride actually demands something of her. Demanded that she be ready. That she set her aim on the groom's arrival and allow that to distinguish her. The difference between the five virgins is where they aimed their hearts. So I have to ask you, where is your heart aimed? As the bride, and you are that, where have you set your hope? And is it cultivating an intimacy that moves beyond some sort of weird prayer agenda or insecurity or comparison to the true joy set before you? And if not, why? What is keeping you from that kind of love? In prayer, our eyes turn back towards our groom and we remember who we are. Prayer is where and how we know love. The great gift of our cosmic romance, to know a love so profound here and now through prayer is to let that love not only change us, but change the world. That's what we want. This is the kind of love we long to know. I'll end with this. My family story definitely didn't end the way you'd imagine, nor did it end the way we hoped. It was seven years before any of us would hear from my mom again. But in the years that followed, as I've gone back to that specific moment I told you about earlier, I realized something I didn't know then. My dad wasn't just a noble, faithful, godly husband, and he was. But he was much more than that. My dad, a pastor for over 40 years, through prayer and after so many years of following Jesus, he knew what it meant to be the bride. And he knew the love and the fidelity of his groom. He lived as though he knew who he was in the story and he lived as though he knew how it ends. He knew his identity of being the bride and because of that, he also knew what it meant to live like a groom. We, We are the bride of Christ, a term that can feel cringy and abstract and archaic. 
and yet it is meant to shape the identity and the destiny of our lives, of the story we tell not only to ourselves, but to each other and to the world. At weddings, we all love to look at the face of the groom as the bride comes down the aisle. What if we lived fully aware, not just of the groom's face, but of the reality that the joy on his face is because he is beholding the bride, beholding us, beholding you. Let's stand and respond to Jesus. Johnny's gonna come up in just a moment and lead you brilliantly, but I do wanna offer just two senses I've had for you. We're gonna respond, by the way, to what Jesus might be saying to us. And I believe he's speaking in the room. Um, And Johnny will lead us in how you do that. But I just wanna offer two things, two invitations that I sense maybe from the spirit for this community and for you specifically today in the room. The first is this, real simply, I just had a growing sense as I was praying this morning that some of you might need a, and it sounds so weird to say kind of, I don't know, churchy, which it's church, so. um, But you need a fresh encounter with the love of God. Like it's like you've forgotten. Do you know what I mean? And that's okay. That that happens. Sometimes I say to God, I just need to feel you with me. I need to be reminded of the ways that you do love me and see me. I just wonder if there's some in the room who felt like, man, I just need a fresh encounter with this kind of love, the kind of love you've mentioned today. And then second, I just wonder if there's some, maybe you've just been journeying with Jesus and you're like, I've I've noticed this hunger inside of me, but I haven't been able to pinpoint what it is, but I feel clear invitation today from the spirit that I need to lean into prayer. And, And what we'd wanna do today is just bless that is just say, yes, God, would you bless this burden and this hunger that they're carrying? And then would you, by faith, just step in and say, yes, Lord, this is what I'm going after. So uh, as those things resonate, again, Johnny's gonna tell you what to do with them, but would you just even now not stop responding to the Spirit, but keep responding as he's speaking?